Well, good morning. Uh, we're glad that all of you are here today. Uh, if you're a guest with us, you're new around here, we're very glad that you're here today. And uh, we want to say a, a special welcome to everybody who's watching us online. Uh, for the first time today, we have a Facebook live stream, so we're really excited about that. Uh, if you're not able to be here on a Sunday, you will still be able to uh, get the sermon, so we're really excited to have you here with us. We're starting a new sermon series today. We're going to be going through the book of Colossians, and not only are we going to be studying the book of Colossians on Sunday morning, starting this week, we're going to be studying that in small groups, and so we're really excited to be able to dive deep into the book of Colossians together, and uh, Colossians isn't a particularly long book, and we're going to be studying it for the next eight weeks, so that means we're going to be able to dig deep together. We're going to be able to go slow and take our time through the book of Colossians and, and really study the importance of this book and the meaning that it can have on our lives. So uh, I want to introduce you to the book of Colossians today. And there's this one idea that really gets to the heart of why Paul wrote this letter. And this one idea is this, external pressure. External pressure. That's why Paul wrote the book of Colossians. Now, uh, I know we don't really understand what it's like to have external pressures on us today, uh, but if you just use your imagination with me uh, for, for just a minute, imagine with me that we lived in a world where there were uh, two political parties that were always vying for your attention, for your affection. Just, I know, it's hard, but just imagine with me briefly, okay? And the, the two political parties were polar opposites. One is way over here, and the other is way over here. And they are just always bombarding you with information, trying to convince you that they're right, that the other side is wrong, not just wrong, the spawn of Satan. And it's always just a competition for your attention, and it's overwhelming sometimes. Again, I know we can't relate to that, but that's kind of what it's like to be in Colossae, where Paul is writing this letter. It's hard to understand where the truth lies when you're constantly being bombarded by different messages. Christians in Colossae felt that every day. They open their newspaper and they see advertisements for Gnostic teachings. They turn on the evening news and the pundits are begging people to follow the Judaizers. And it seems like the only thing the two sides can ever agree on is that being a Christian isn't enough. It's not enough to be a Christian. You have to be Gnostic. It's not enough to be a Christian. You have to be a Judaizer. So wherever the Colossian Christians go, they're seeing Gnosticism and being told it's the way of the future. And they're seeing the teachings of the Judaizers and being reminded that this is the way of the ancient past. And they hear about these two ideas. And the more they hear about these two ideas, the harder it gets to understand truth. The harder it gets to understand their faith. Maybe, just maybe, Paul's message to them is something we could learn from as well. Now, don't, under, don't misunderstand me. This is not a political sermon, okay? That, that was just an illustration. We're going to move past it. You have your opinions. I have mine. I've got Jesus, and that trumps all of them. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about him, okay? Um, the Christians in Colossae were facing incredible pressure. 
And all around they're being saying, if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. Or if you don't learn this, then you'll never know God and you're a fool. It's kind of like the story of a, a boy and his father who set out on a trip with their donkey. You ever heard this? So there's a man and his son, and they're, they're going into town to the market with their donkey. And as they're walking along, they see somebody that says, you fools, don't you realize that a donkey is for riding upon, and yet you two are walking beside it? So the father stops, and he thinks for a second, and he decides, well, I'll put my son. I'll put my son on the donkey. And they carry on a little bit further along. They see a group of older gentlemen, and they scoff, and they say, look at that lazy boy riding on that donkey while his father, who provides everything, has to just walk beside him. The father stops, and he thinks for a second, and he pulls the boy off, and he gets on the donkey, and they ride for a while, and he's holding the boy's hand, and then they get a little further, a little closer to town, and they see a group of older women, and they scoff, and they say, look at that lazy father who's making his son walk while he rides easily along on the donkey. So the father stops, and he thinks for a minute. And he picks the boy up and he, he puts the boy on the donkey sitting in front of him and they go on along and surely this is fine, but they get a little further and they see somebody from PETA and they say, don't you realize how hard you're making the donkey work? That wasn't in my notes. I didn't mean to say PETA. <laughs> don't you realize how hard you're making this donkey work? So the father stops and he considers for a minute, what am I So they grab two big pieces of timber and they tie the donkey's feet to it and they both carry one end of the donkey. They get to the bridge in town and the bridge is a little unsturdy and the boy trips a little bit and the donkey falls into the river and because his hands and feet are bound, he drowns in the river and behind him an old man says, don't you realize that if you try to please everybody, you'll end up pleasing Nobody. That's what it was like to be a Christian in Colossae. That's what it was like. And Paul's message to them is really simple. You belong to Christ. And that's enough. You belong to Christ. And that's enough. Here's how Paul says it. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. Now the same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant. He's helping on your behalf. He's told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. 
So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all His glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father, He's enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Paul's message is really simple. You belong to Christ. And that's enough. Those words are just as important for us today as they were when Paul first wrote them. And before we dig into that text, before we start to look at what Paul says, I want to give you a little bit of context. I want to explain those two groups. Okay, so you, you heard me reference it, the, the Gnostics and the Judaizers. Let's give a little bit of context as to what those two groups are talking about. We'll start with the Gnostics. Uh, it comes from, from a Greek word, gnosis, which means knowledge, and two of you care about that, so we'll move on. And, and this wasn't an organized religion. It wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't a church. You couldn't go to the Gnostic church and worship. It was more of a philosophy. And at its most basic level, here's what Gnosticism is saying. They're saying that sin isn't the problem in the world. Sin isn't the problem in the world. Ignorance is the problem in the world. You don't have a sin problem. You've got an ignorance problem. And they'll point back to the garden of Eden, where the serpent says, you can know between good and evil, and you will be like God. They're saying it's not a sin problem, it's a knowledge problem, it's an ignorance problem. So because of that, the key to salvation is knowledge. The key to salvation is more knowledge. And here's the problem, the Gnostics are going around Colossae and they're saying, you're a Christian, that's great. Hopefully one day you'll have the knowledge revealed to you so you can be saved. And the Christians are going, wait a minute, wait, hold on a second. What, what, what knowledge? What are you talking about? What special knowledge? Oh, you didn't know? Being, believing in Jesus, that's, that's good. That's a, that's a good place to start, but that's not all you need. You need to have a special revelation of salvation knowledge. Otherwise, you're not saved. And so the idea becomes the more knowledge you acquire, the more likely it is that you'll be saved. And here's the motivation behind Gnosticism. Here's why they say what they say. Here's why they preach that message. They wanted to make Christianity as inclusive as possible. They wanted as many people to be welcome in Christianity as possible. They wanted as little life change as possible to be required to be a Christian, so they opened up as much thought as possible. I don't really want to change this part of my life. So we're going to say that Christianity is inclusive of that. I, I like this idea of Jesus, but my family always did it this way, and we always worshipped this God, and so let's make Christianity as open as possible. So that way I can still 
worship the way that my family did and still talk about Jesus. Let's make Jesus as general as possible so that it doesn't really affect my life. So after all, knowledge is the thing that saves us, right? So we need to have knowledge from as many sources as possible, right? You see how that can get a little dangerous for somebody who's trying to follow Jesus? So that's the first group, the Gnostics. Here's the second, the Judaizers. And, and their motivation's a little easier to understand. The Judaizers were incredibly devout Jews. And they were coming and they were saying, okay, you, you guys are Christians, that's fine. But remember that Christianity isn't enough. Your faith isn't enough. The Judaizers say the key to salvation is obeying the law. If you're a Christian, that's a good place to start. Now, let's talk about obeying the law. Then you'll be getting somewhere. You're not going to be saved by faith. You'll be saved by adherence to the law. Your faith is a good place to start, but make sure that you are obedient. And they were strongly advocating for a return to the way things were. Here's the only thing both groups have in common. We'll boil it down to this simple point. The only thing that both groups have in common, your faith isn't enough. That's what they're saying. That's what the Christians in Colossae were facing. This whole letter of Colossians is about reminding us that our faith is enough. Paul gets right to it in verse 4. Here's what he says. He says, We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from the confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. What God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. What's Paul saying here? He's saying your faith is enough. Remember the gospel that you heard, the gospel that you believed that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Jesus endured the penalty for our sins so that we can enjoy the reward of His righteousness. Paul is saying remember the hope that you have in the gospel because it is enough. Nothing else necessary. It's not just enough for you. It's enough for people all over the world who are hearing about Jesus, learning of His sacrifice, and trusting Him for salvation. That's what he says in verse 6. This same good news that came to you, it's going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere it goes. It's changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard it and understood the truth of God's wonderful grace. Your faith is enough. There's no secret knowledge that's revealed once you've been a believer for 20 years or achieve a certain level of faith. When you're finally smart enough or when you're finally obedient enough, your faith is enough. There's no need to become a practitioner of the Jewish faith and earn your salvation. Your faith is enough. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe your life has just been crazy for a while. And you've been firing on all cylinders and you're wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing good enough? Am I spiritual enough? And Am I this or that? And just stop. Just stop whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're worrying about, and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of your faith the perfecter of your faith because here's what you need to know. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, even though he despised its shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him. He's endured such hostility at the hands of sinners against himself. For what purpose? So that you do not grow weary and lose heart. So just stop and realize that your faith is enough. Now, I want you to look at how Paul prays for these Christians in Colossae. Here's what he says. He says, we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. So that language there, that's not an accident. Knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, all of that language is going to resonate with people who are familiar with a Gnostic teaching. All of that is going to make sense to them. And so Paul uses that language right as he starts to teach. He says, I pray that God will give you complete Knowledge. That's exactly what the Gnostics were after. Complete knowledge. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, complete knowledge of God's will. Very specific kind of knowledge. Knowledge of God's will. So let's talk about that. What is God's will? A lot of passages that talk about the will of God. Avoid sexual immorality. Give thanks in all circumstances. Be equipped for good works. A lot of passages talk about what the will of God is. Those are all things God wants. Those are all good things that He desires for His people to live holy lives. But if we were to boil the will of God down into this one concise package, how would we do that? We'll start with a principle. The things we want the most are the things we put the most into. Things we want the most are the things we put the most into. If you want something, it'll be evident because that's what you'll work for. If you want a promotion, you're going to put the most effort into your job. If you want your kids to be star athletes, you're going to put the most effort into your kids being star athletes. If you, I don't know, if you want to be a good preacher, you'll put the most effort into being a good preacher. If you want to be a good worship leader, you'll put them, by the way, let's give it up for the worship team. That was a really great set this morning. I had a lot of fun worshiping God this morning with that. That wasn't in my notes either, but I was good. Okay, so if you, wanna, if you want something, you'll put the most effort into that thing. Well, what does God put the most effort into? What does God put the most into? Our salvation. What has God given the most for? Our salvation. He gave His Son. For that, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal, everlasting life. That's what God has put the most into. What's God's will? That all people might be saved. That all people might be saved. Here's how Paul says that in another letter. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good. And it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved 
and understand the truth. He wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth for there's one God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus. He gave His life to purchase freedom for everyone. What does God want the most? That all people everywhere might be saved. That's what He's put His effort into. That's what Jesus died for. And if we know that, Paul says, Paul says it's going to change the way that we think and the way that we act. And here's what he says in verse 10. Then the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you'll grow as you learn to know God better and better. If we know that the will of God is that everyone might be saved, all of a sudden it makes the way we live our lives and the things that we focus on a little easier to understand. What do we do? We share our hope. We share our hope with everybody who will listen. It doesn't come from some secret knowledge that might be revealed one day. It doesn't come from strict obedience to the ancient law. It comes from the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who came into the world to save sinners. And I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner who Jesus died for. And I believe that that's enough. Because of Him, we are no longer slaves to our sin. We are instead children of God. If we're serious about that, if we're serious about living in a way that puts that hope on display, God says we will always be living a life that's pleasing to Him. All the while, we'll grow as we learn to know God better and better. That's how verse 10 ends. We'll learn and we'll grow as we know God better and better. And I think that's the perfect way to describe how Gnosticism differs from Christianity. Gnosticism says if you pursue long enough, if you pursue knowledge long enough, maybe one day you'll get to know God. Christianity says you will know God more and more as you follow Him. Here's why all this is important. Gnosticism says that the more knowledge you can possess, the better you are. It takes knowledge and puts it to the point of supremacy. And that's an idea that can take hold in churches too. It's an idea that can take hold in churches too. Now don't get me wrong. Knowledge isn't a bad thing. Biblical knowledge is a very good thing. More knowledge of the Bible is a good thing. But knowledge has to affect our actions. So understand that more knowledge isn't the end goal. It's not the end goal. And I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, let's say I want to start running. You don't panic. This isn't a real-life illustration. Okay? It's just a sermon illustration. Okay? So let's say I want to start running. And I go out and I buy a pair of uh, running shoes. I do some research. I get a really nice pair of running shoes. And I have my running shoes, and I, I get them all laced up just right, and I go to bed. And then the next morning, I get up first thing, early in the morning, I tie up my nice new running shoes. I was going to have a pair of running shoes up here, uh, use them as a sermon illustration. Turns out I don't have any. 
So I made that much easier. You're just going to have to imagine my running shoes, okay? Uh, so I get my nice new running shoes, and I lace them up. And uh, instead of going out for a run, I get in my car, and I go to the store, and I buy another pair of running shoes. And I take them home, and I unbox them. And the next morning, I get up, and I put on my new running shoes, and I go to the store, and I buy another pair of running shoes. And this goes on several days in a row. Finally, a friend of mine says, hey, Tony, how's your new running going? I said, it's great. I'm up to 11 pairs now. Said, what do you mean? How, what, how much are you running? What? I have a pair that's really great uh, for running on trails. I have a pair that's got some good cushion. It's good for my knees. And I've even been reading the instructions uh, that, that came with my last pair of running shoes, and I find it really inspirational, and it's good. I think it's really encouraging me in this new lifestyle I have. And says, Tony, you're not running at all, are you? Well, no, I haven't actually gone for a run, but did I tell you about the new GPS watch that I got? It would totally track all my runs. You see, acquiring knowledge only matters if it affects our actions. Acquiring knowledge only matters if it affects our actions. So more knowledge is not the ultimate goal. It only matters if it changes how we act. It only matters if it changes how we live. Here's the heart of what Paul's saying. It's not about getting more knowledge. It's not about being better at obeying the law. It's not about doing more. It's about realizing that what's already been done is enough. So Here's what Paul says. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Go take that for a run. Go take that for a run. You know, every field has a world-renowned experts. Preaching's no different. In, in the field of preaching, Fred Craddock is kind of that world-renowned expert. Until his passing, he was the pinnacle of uh, preaching experts. And he tells this story. This one time he was on vacation with his wife, and they, they stopped at a little restaurant in the mountains of Tennessee, and they just wanted to have a quiet lunch. And so they sit down. The waitress comes over. They order their drinks. And after the, after the waitress leaves, a gentleman comes up and says, hey, you guys, uh, you guys vacationing here? You having a good time? Craddock's tired. He just wants to have a nice quiet lunch with his wife. He says, yeah, we're on vacation. Yeah, we're having a good time. The guy says, well, what do you do? I'm a professor of homiletics, thinking, you know, that'll shut the guy up. He'll leave now. The guy says, oh, you're a preacher. Let me tell you a preacher's story. Everybody's got a preacher's story. So the guy pulls up a chair and he sits down and then he says, you know, I grew up in a small town and everybody knew me in my small town because I didn't have a dad. Nobody knew who my dad was and the kids at school were mean to me and they'd make fun of me and they'd call me names and every time I was out and around town, I could just feel the eyes of the people on me. And I could hear him saying, who's your dad? Anyone's guess is good enough. Who's your dad? Well, I heard about a new preacher that came to town when I was about 12, and everybody was talking about him. And finally, one Sunday, I decided I'm going to go to church and hear about this guy. I'm going to hear what this guy has to say, hear what all the, all the hubbub is about. And he said, so I snuck into the back of the church after things started. And I listened, and he was pretty good. 
but I snuck out before anybody else would have a chance to talk to me as the service ended. I came late and I left early. And that became my pattern. I would come late and I would leave early. And I would come late and I would leave early. And one Sunday, I was there and I was so wrapped up in what he was saying that I forgot to leave early. And all of a sudden, we're praying. And church is over. And I'm horrified and I'm momentarily paralyzed and I, I start to make a break for the aisle and then I realize that it's too late. The aisle's already jammed and I'm stuck in my row. And I decide I'm just going to sit down and be as inconspicuous as possible and people will eventually leave and hopefully nobody will notice me. And from behind, I felt a big heavy hand on my shoulder and I turned around and I looked up and it was the preacher and he said, boy, who's your father? And my heart sank. The one question I'd never want anybody to ask me. And that's what this preacher starts with. And so I start to fumble and wonder what it is that I might say or or what I can explain to him that will make this okay. And he says, that's all right. I know who your father is, son. The boy looks up at him with new interest. He says, yeah, you're a child of God. The man looked at Fred Craddock and his wife, and he says, I'll tell you, preacher, those words changed my life. He got up and he walked off. A couple seconds later, the waitress comes back over, and she says, do you know who that was? He said, no, who was that? That's Ben Cooper. He was a two-term governor of Tennessee, just retired. See, Ben Cooper learned who he was in the sight of God. And that was enough. My prayer is that this week, we might learn who we are in the sight of God. So here's what it boils down to. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Let's go take that for a run. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise You. We come to You and we admit that we we can't do it. We won't ever be smart enough We won't ever be obedient enough. We need Jesus. We praise You that You have given Jesus for us. Father, we pray that You would continue to change us and transform us, not by our own power, but by Yours. No matter where we're starting from, God, change us. We beg of You. In Jesus' name, Amen.